Welcome to the dignity of suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist, author, and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Hey everyone, welcome to episode six. I wanted to take this episode after having completed a bunch of in-depth interviews to maybe bring the volume down a little bit and do a solo podcast focusing on a concept that really distills so much of the work that I do. And I think it's going to be a really nice setup for next week's podcast with Justin Sinceri, psychotherapist, who focuses on American neurologist Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory. And if you haven't heard of this, it doesn't matter. It's a very important idea when it comes to how the nervous system responds to stress and to threat. And in many ways, it has a lot to do with our capacity to tolerate suffering. I want to talk to you about one of the ways that I have defined this in my practice and my thinking. And what I refer to is something called the front of the system. The front of the system. And what I mean by that is that when we are interacting when we are nervous, when we are sharing something important, there are all kinds of layers that are going on within us. And how we deliver information changes dramatically if I'm talking to myself, if I'm talking to a best friend, if I'm talking to my partner, if I'm giving a lecture, I mean, these environments dramatically shift how our neurophysiology is operating in the moment. So much of the work that I do is often between couples. And what is so unique about the romantic couple is the evolutionary quality of that relationship. The stakes are nowhere higher than in your family with somebody who knows so much about you and somebody with whom there is a great need to feel heard and seen and understood. I would suspect that this also applies in large audiences, when you are in front of large audiences. And I have had a career as a performer for decades. And I remember that as a performer, there was eventually a switch as I got older and I matured, where I no longer worried about what the audience thought. 
I mean, of course that plays into my mind. And of course, if I'm taking a risk on stage, those thoughts are there. But there was a qualitative shift where this notion of good and bad disappeared. And I knew that it really just mattered how I felt and how I was connected to the material. Many of you know the great late Leonard Cohen. And I got to see him on his last tour in Kingston, Ontario. And here was this man, I believe by then in his 80s. And when he began to sing, very often he would almost crumple himself into a ball, kneel down on the stage. He didn't look at anyone. In fact, he closed his eyes and he started to sing. And this made a lot of sense to me. What I understood, at least in my own fantasy of what Leonard Cohen was doing, was that he first had to ground within himself before he could then open his eyes and face the thousands of people who were there. And I'm sure it didn't have to do with fear, so much as his own struggle to try to connect with himself. Another Canadian icon, Katie Lang, who I've seen a number of times perform, she doesn't wear shoes on stage. She's in bare feet. If I'm not mistaken, when she sang at the Olympics in Vancouver, she was also in her bare feet. And so there's this idea that we have to find some way to regulate ourselves in order to communicate. And if we ignore these needs, if we try and leapfrog over what our particular need might be in a moment, then we can come out of what we call homeostasis. Homeostasis, which Stephen Porges refers to and we'll get into in the next podcast as well, is something we're all familiar with. For instance, when you're cold, you shiver. When you're hot, you sweat. When you're hungry, you have pangs to eat. And so the body is always trying to come back. It's always trying to bring you back to a homeostatic place. There's a great analogy for this, which is used in looking for life on other planets, which they call the Goldilocks zone. Essentially, they use Goldilocks and the three bears as a metaphor for conditions that are just right. Not too hot, not too cold, not too hard, not too soft, not too big, not too small. And our body is always angling for that window of tolerance. The window of tolerance refers to a place that we're in where our nervous system is not under threat or 
there's enough safety to tolerate certain kinds of anxieties, such as being up on stage, such as trying to open up with your partner. But here's the thing. Each of us carries with us a kind of schema, a kind of map, a map of emotion. Another renowned neurologist in the States, Antonio Damasio, he developed a theory called somatic marker theory, which basically talks about the sophistication of emotional maps that exist within us. You may have seen the movie Inside Out, where they go in to the brain and each of our emotions becomes these discrete characters. And if there's a stimulus in our environment, all of a sudden maybe rage is turned on or love is turned on. But that is not actually how it works. There are not discrete areas in our brain where you find unemotion. How we respond, what our body and thoughts and mind and feelings do is an extremely sophisticated array of memory, of our current state of fatigue or rest, and a whole bunch of other factors, including our appraisal of a situation, any preconceived ideas that we have which would tie to memory, so you can think of somebody, for instance, who gets into a car accident and then after they've recovered, they have to go through that intersection again. And what happens? They get nervous. Even though, as the famous pediatrician and psychiatrist Donald Winnicott said, that the catastrophe has already happened, as in the accident already took place in the past. We are hardwired to remember these incidents and to protect ourselves from them. That is the priority. That is what you'll hear me talk about next week in my interview when we look at the most fundamental and automatic ways that the nervous system is always keeping us safe. And as Antonio Damasio points out, the majority of these processes in our body are antisocial. The majority of these processes in our body are anti-social, meaning that when you're driving and you're having a great conversation, maybe having a good laugh with someone, and all of a sudden, out of the corner of your eye, you see a car coming 100 miles an hour, you will immediately forget about the conversation. You'll probably grip the wheel tighter. Notice that your blood and your oxygen go to your hands and your feet. You'll make sure that you're out of harm's way. And then once your heart comes down, 
you'll probably say to the person you were speaking to, hey, sorry, there was a lunatic driving 100 miles an hour and my heart's racing. And that is a very helpful dissociation. It's antisocial, meaning the autonomic nervous system potentially just saved your life. But it has a real purpose. And it will win every time. But of course, as human beings, we have the capacity to train ourselves to go against some of these instincts. For instance, a firefighter can go into a burning building, train themselves to assess a situation, and even if they're nervous, to go in. Only certain animals can do this. It's a very rare ability that relies on a large and well-developed neocortex, the newest part of the mammalian brain, so that we can appraise situations and make decisions that go against our baser instincts. Now, what's very interesting about this is that throughout our lifespan, we're constantly, constantly scanning for information to decide if we are safe. And this is easy to see. For instance, people that emerge from war zones, people that emigrate from countries that have been unstable or have seen a lot of violence... Naturally, in the way that they respond to others, there is often a degree of suspicion, not trusting the other. I'm not making any blanket statements. People can obviously work through things in beautiful ways, and we have great examples of that. The most prominent, I think, in our world was Nelson Mandela, who emerged from extreme hardship, incarceration, only to come out and have the ability to broker peace. But it is that incredible uniqueness of his optimism that actually defined him. So when we see this, we're like, wow, <laughs> how does someone endure such hatred only to come out and transcend it. For most of us, if you go to a restaurant and you get food poisoning, you're not going to go back for quite a long time. If you're walking down the street and you're terrified by a particular environment or you feel unsafe, you will most likely learn to take a different route. This is just how we've survived. But here's where it becomes an issue, particularly in relationships with people who we count on, people who we need, people who we love. Their ability to disappoint us, hurt us, not hear us when we're trying to say something important, those misattunements 
times where we come out of attunement with someone who we count on to give us the pleasure and the comfort of human connection, those misattunements can really hurt. And in fact, so much of what we talk about when we talk about mental health, when we talk about the ability to survive situations, to manage disappointment, to deal with relationships, to stay focused in class, to go to work and get feedback from your boss without staying up all night and worrying that you're going to lose your job. These are all relational issues. And the reason this is important is that we all carry with us maps, maps of meaning that we have developed over years of our upbringing, of our family life, of our life at school, of successes and disappointments. It is true that some people have more emotional safety than others growing up. Some people can go out and just play in the yard or have the freedom to go down the street with their friends. Others, like somebody I was speaking to today, had to make decisions at a very young age in terms of which parent they were going to visit. And that brought a sense of responsibility and guilt at a very young age that another child may not have been feeling. And I'm not even suggesting that somehow one is better than the other. I mean, to a large extent, we prioritize safety. We prioritize developmentally appropriate emotional demands so that children aren't overwhelmed, that we're not putting too much pressure on someone before they can understand why they're in that position. But it's also true that these situations that we go through, even early losses, even going back to Nelson Mandela's life, often these experiences are what give us color in our life. The one thing that I keep in mind when I'm meeting with an individual or I'm meeting with a couple, and I know the metaphor is cheesy, <laughs> but... I have yet to find something else that gives me the same kind of clarity and pleasure when I think about it. it, is like looking at a garden with all different kinds of flowers, bright colors, flowers that are punctuated by black marks and different patterns. And, you know, I think in the modern psychological setting we're so focused on self-improvement that we sometimes lose sight of the fact that what we've been through even our hardest moments contribute to making us who we are I tried to hang on to this idea and recommit myself 
all the time when encountering another human being. As the tendency to defend ourselves when encountering the other can be so strong. When we come back, I delve further into my notion of the front of the system, the place where we shiver and shake, and a part of us that we often try to hide. I just wanted to take a moment to share my enthusiasm about my interview with Dr. Gabor Mate taking place Thursday, June 3rd, 2021. If you haven't signed up, head on over to my website, mitchellsmolkin.com. You can attend live, and it is free, and I really hope to see you there. I will delve into questions around shame and rage, and I cannot wait to speak with a living icon in the field of mental health and personal development. Please subscribe to my show if you haven't done so already. Share this with those that you love. And if you're finding this useful, you can head on over my website to support this podcast. Now, back to the show. What I want to zero in on today, which is a function of how we share that, how we share our subjectivity is something that I refer to as the front of the system. And to use an example, if I am sharing something that is particularly personal for me, I'm going to want to try to be in a state of homeostasis, like I referred to before. I'm going to want to be in that state because when we are in a place where we are regulated and we can feel our breath and we can be in touch with our emotions, we are more able in those moments to actually talk and reveal how we feel. And that requires a degree of safety. But often in relationships, as I mentioned, things aren't safe. You know, I was watching Eurovision the other night, and I'm here in Sweden. And at the end of Eurovision, they check in with judges from a number of countries. And it was very polished, you know, They went from Moldova to France to Italy. And person after person was just, you know, affable and relatable. And then they came to Sweden, the judge in Sweden. And when the camera came on, they were a bit caught off guard. The audio engineer was still fixing her mic He jumped out of the way. She seemed a little flustered. She seemed to be reading from some kind of cue card. And then at some point, she stopped and she said, I'm sorry, I'm a little nervous. This is actually a bid for homeostasis. If we can acknowledge how we're feeling, it might actually help us regulate. And this is actually exactly what I'm talking about. 
Here is this woman in front of hundreds of millions of people. In fact, the producer of this year's Eurovision was Swedish. It's a famous crime novelist in Sweden who's also a TV producer. And here was the Swedish judge fumbling. And so it actually makes sense in retrospect that she stopped what she was talking about. She didn't try to pretend that everything was okay. And she named her fear. I'm sorry, I am nervous. And that actually is one of the most useful and significant shortcuts that we can use if we're trying to talk to somebody who's important to us and we're having a hard time opening up. And the reason that is so important is because that is exactly what I am referring to when I talk about the front of the system. So in the case of the Swedish judge, were she to try to just put on this persona and fake it, it would have been obvious to most people who were watching. It didn't start out well. She was obviously nervous and she was stumbling. And so what happens at that point is that if you try and fake it, you lose connection. People can see that you're not okay. And that's an important point because particularly in romantic relationships, when we're trying to talk about significant issues, especially if there's a history of things not going well or certain conversations not going well or somebody feeling attacked or micromanaged, then what actually happens when we come across as nervous and we don't actually name it, people can see us as aloof, as threatening, as upset. Check it out next time. Check out what it's like when you see somebody who is holding in a lot of emotion and just ask yourself, how do you perceive them? One of the shortcuts to having intimate conversations and bearing anxiety is to name exactly how we feel. And it is something that I employ time and time and time again in my professional practice. Frankly, I'm ruthless about it. I'm ruthless because in some cases there is actually no point in trying to muscle our way through our fears. It only raises our heart rate it gets us sweating. Our body thinks increasingly that we are under threat. And those signals between human beings are easily read. Our brain is always sensing, like a cat, when it sees another cat and their tails go up. <laughs> and the autonomic nervous system is in action. We're no different. We, we may not have the same kind of access to our base instincts in the sense that 
We don't have a tail that all of a sudden springs up and becomes all bushy. Instead, very often, these fears are put into thought. Why are you angry right now? Why are you trying to control me? What's wrong, right? How often you say, what's wrong? Is everything okay? And then all of a sudden you feel that feeling of dread. These subtle communications are very important to get clear around. And I mean that both within ourselves and with others. There's a great term which I have used before, name it to tame it, which simply has to do with this idea when we're feeling ourselves overwhelmed, when we don't know what is bothering us, to slow down and become curious and really ask yourself, what is it that you're afraid of? We don't always have access to our unconscious appraisals and emotions, but if we can just take the time to be curious, it can often really help. When it comes to conversations with others, and of course there are contexts where this is appropriate and not, and here I'm mostly referring to these intimate relationships that we really need and that are very hard to do, and lots and lots of people struggle, especially because and if you refer to my last podcast in my interview, events happen in our relationships that raise the stakes. Children, moving for jobs, illness, facing death, trying to relate to your partner's family. All of these high-stakes situations all of a sudden throw our nervous systems into hyperdrive. And that's when relationships in some ways begin to falter. You, you lose that carefree, organic feeling. You know how many times couples have come into my office and I'm slowing things down and I'm helping one of them maybe talk to the other person about something they need, an emotional need. Something like, you know, when I'm scared... I just need you to hold my hand. And the other partner who may have a predisposition to offer solutions, they might say something like, well, I, I just don't organically feel it. I don't organically feel like reaching out to their hand. And that might scare them because then they might say, well, I want my relationship to feel natural. And I totally get that. I mean, we all want for things to flow and to feel natural. and But think about it. What, what is a relationship, if not the evolution of learning about what somebody needs? And so when it comes down to it, and our partner's needs challenge our instincts, our habits, what makes us comfortable or uncomfortable, the fact that we need to go through a process of learning to work on some of our inferior muscles to be better caregivers, that's not unnatural. That's intimacy. That's learning to love someone 
And of course, there's a huge shock when you realize the person you're with does not match your initial projection. And this relates to the conversation at hand because even being able to say to somebody, hey, this is uncomfortable for me. This is awkward. I am not used to opening up about my feelings. I will spend weeks with couples just making it safe and normal to look at each other and open up about even the simplest and most basic fear, such as, this isn't easy for me, this makes me feel awkward, before we even get to any substantive conversations. And this is really important because we are all hungry to fix things. We all wish we could just somehow get through some of the most difficult problems in our life, some of the most difficult conversations with relatives or with our spouses. But actually, until we acknowledge the front of the system, until we can actually say, look, I want to talk to you about how I feel when we visit my parents' house and your relationship with my mother and how it's awkward and I know she criticizes you. But I'm nervous. I'm nervous that you won't hear me. I'm nervous that you'll get upset. Whatever it is, right? You see where I'm going with this? That before we can jump in to the deep end, we have to learn how to swim. And in my interview next week, we're going to go into some of the finer details of how the brain is essentially phylogenic, meaning it has evolved over time. And in states of stress, there is great pressure for us to use ever more primitive modes of regulating our affect, which is why earlier I referenced the fact that blood and oxygen go to our limbs when we're scared. And that's a whole range of eventualities there from potentially punching somebody if someone is unsafe, if somebody goes after your child in public and you've never hit a person in the world, you may find yourself in a fight. It could just mean clenching your fists quietly <laughs> behind your back. Think about how many people wake up in the morning and have been clenching their jaw all night, the way that stress causes tension. What I'm really trying to focus on here and share with you from my work with individuals is that if we don't address, first of all, this first layer of how we respond to anxiety-provoking situations, to go back to someone as famous and beloved as Leonard Cohen turning away from the audience, closing his eyes, and just, just trying to connect with himself. That is hard to do. And if we don't make an effort, especially in interpersonal relationships, to telegraph for people clearly what we are going through underneath, 
our brains are hardwired to experience other people's stress as often threatening. And so then it becomes, as we say in French, a folie à deux. It becomes two people who are feeding off of each other's nervous energy, and then we have the kind of proverbial fight that goes in circles, and nobody's hearing anything, and each person is getting louder, and then you just either go to bed frustrated or you just have to call it off because you can't hear anything. And as I've mentioned before, our earlobes actually shrink to protect us from hearing damage. So our body very, 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 very quickly in high-stress situations relies on all kinds of antisocial shifts to protect us from getting hurt. And that can be a huge roadblock to intimacy. And I'll leave you today with probably the single most important fact when it comes to how we deal with such strong impulses within us to protect. And that is the idea of repair. This is an idea that I squarely take from my training as an emotionally focused therapist. And it is an exquisite and beautiful idea which really helps take the pressure off of us to get it right when we are under duress. At the end of the day, we are human. At the end of the day, we are going to get scared. We are going to get upset. We are going to be disappointed. We are going to make mistakes. We are going to come home tired from work and not treat our families the way that we want to. We're going to get overwhelmed at the airport when our flight is delayed and we haven't eaten and we lose it on somebody because we just don't have anything left in the tank. This is our shared humanity. The idea of repair is probably the most crucial idea I've come across in my work as a psychotherapist because it overlays so beautifully with what we need as human beings to survive. And what we need as human beings to survive is hope. That is actually what we lose when we encounter chronic violence, chronic avoidance from our needs. We start to lose hope. We start to imagine that if we are in pain, there isn't going to be a solution. That is one of the main reasons that people tend to go into fight or flight. That one person tends to become very hypervigilant when they're upset or somebody else tends to withdraw. We don't have hope that a situation is going to resolve. We don't know how to get through it. And so we have to become defensive. And the idea of repair, which I think we can use in friendships, in loving relationships, at work, in all facets of our life, is the idea that after we come back from these perfect storm moments, the moment at the airport when you yell at your family and you didn't mean it, or the moment when you just couldn't help somebody you love because you were too tired, repair just means coming back and opening up to them and letting them in and being clear about what happened. 
And the front of the system is great here. It's a great concept because it lets us off the hook. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to get it right. You can just come back and say, hey, I was exhausted. I had nothing left in the tank. I know you needed me. And if you can't even do that, you can come back and say, hey, I feel ashamed. I feel like I let you down. I'm scared to even talk about this. Or if you have to even make it smaller, you can say, hey, I'm afraid you're really angry, but I want to connect with you. You see what I'm doing here? We have to name the psychodynamics that are going on in a given moment. We have to find a way to put into words our fears. And for some people, that is very, very hard to do. I get that. I work with people every day who have never really felt comfortable opening up. I work with couples who break into laughter for long periods of time when I ask them to turn to each other and open up because it it's new. And in many cultures, we often don't speak very openly about our private feelings. But when it comes to repairing relationships, if we can consistently put into language the fronts of our system, the parts of us that are trembling, and we can let somebody else know that we are vulnerable in a subtle, soft, and fragile way, I have never seen it fail in my office. I hope if you didn't listen to my previous podcast, you'll go to it because there's a taste of it there at the end. When Ian slows down, opens up why he's afraid, and his wife melts in his arms because that is what the brain is designed to do. If we show that we are in need, we create opportunities to be taken care of. It is not Cupid's arrow that makes the wound. It is the wound that finds Cupid's arrow. I remain faithfully yours. Thank you for joining me today. My interview with the renowned Dr. Gabor Mate is only two days away, and you can attend live on June 3rd. Simply head to mitchellsmolkin.com forward slash Gabor Mate. You can also find a link on my homepage. Please do not forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and family if you find it useful. Until next time.